Walking into mindfulness, I can express my love, respect, and care for you, our precious earth. I will touch the truth that mind and body are not two separate entities. I will train myself to look deeply to see your true nature. You are my loving mother, a living being, a great being, an immense, beautiful and precious wonder. You are not only matter, you are also mind, you are also consciousness. Just as the beautiful pine or tender grain of corn possess an innate sense of knowing, so too do you. Within you, dear Mother Earth, there are the elements of earth, water, air and fire, and there is also time, space and consciousness. Our nature is your nature, which is also the nature of the cosmos. A just, stable, and sustainable world for all life. It's the future that 2020 reminded us we really need. While it can be hard to imagine the huge shifts it will take to get there, one thing remains certain, how essential we are to each other. People to people, people to nature, nature to everything. Welcome, friends. This is the Emerging World Project podcast. What are you doing here? I'm Addison Brown. We are in the middle of our third season, which has been dedicated to the writings of the beloved Zen master and peace activist, as well as a formidable earth advocate, Thich Nhat Hanh. The excerpt you heard at the opening of this show was read from his book, Love Letter to the Earth. You can hear the entirety of excerpts that we recorded with our special guest on the first episode of this season. You'll find that on our website, emergingworldproject.org. Let's get into our conversation with photographer Nick Brandt. This recording happened four days after the mass shooting at the Robb Elementary School in Texas, which came only 10 days after the deadly shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo. I was feeling down and relieved that we needed to postpone this interview, as we all should be aware of the importance of rest when there is so much happening in our world today. I was in desperate need of that rest, so I welcomed the postponement. When we finally did manage to sit for our recording, we were able to share our views, concerns, and advocacy for more mindfulness and less suffering in our world. The themes in Nick Brandt's photographic series always relate to the destructive impact that humankind is having on both the natural world and now humans themselves. Nearly 20 years ago, Nick Brandt started photographing the wild animals of Africa as an LG to a disappearing world. After some years, seeing the escalating environmental destruction He felt an urgent need to move away from that kind of work and address the destruction in a much more direct way. 
And now here we are in 2022, where climate change is very much our reality. The effects are being felt across the globe, from birds falling from the sky from heat and exhaustion in Mumbai, the devastating fires in California, and even more recently, the death of thousands upon thousands of cows dying from heat stroke in the Midwest of the United States of America. Nick's The Day May Break series is the first part of a global series portraying people and animals impacted by environmental destruction. Photographed in Zimbabwe and Kenya, the people in the photos have all been badly affected by climate change, displaced by cyclones that destroyed their homes, displaced and impoverished after years-long severe droughts. The photos were taken at five sanctuaries and conservancies. The animals are almost all long-term rescues due to everything from poaching of their parents to habitat destruction and poisoning. These animals can never be released back to the wild. Now habituated, it was therefore safe for strangers to be photographed close to the animals in the same frame. Nick has had solo gallery and museum shows around the world, including New York, London, Berlin, Stockholm, Paris, and Los Angeles. All of the series are published in book form. In 2010, he co-founded Big Life Foundation, a nonprofit in Kenya and Tanzania that employs more than 300 local rangers, protecting 1.6 million acres of the Amboseli Kilimanjaro ecosystem. We caught up with Nick at his home in California. Thank you for coming through and, and talking to me. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome. So uh, can you tell me when you think that you first noticed your relationship to the natural world? From I grew up in the city, but right from the beginning, fortunately living only uh, about 200 yards from the park, um, I was always very drawn to it and would escape there at every possible opportunity to birdwatch to um, study the trees and the plants. And so there was an instinctual connection to the natural world right from the very beginning. And I would like to maintain, I would hope that it is true, that all of us are born with a natural instinctual connection to nature. And that as we grow up, through one thing and another, through societal pressure, peer pressure, bloody iPads and iPhones and video games, that many people um, lose that connection um, and become even desensitized. And the hope is that somewhere along the line of their lives that they will find a way back to re-embracing that connection with nature. Do you have um, any particular way that you uh, consciously tend to that relationship? I live up a mountain in the countryside and uh, every day there are multiple moments of joy uh, wandering the land, 
uh, watching the red tail talks and the hummingbirds and listening to the bird song and at night listening to the owls and the night jars or as you call them in this country common poor wills mm. um, that for me is an endless source of of joy mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious about when you were first exposed to or what was your first exposure to art Oh, I mean, I always, I always wanted from a very young age to be a painter. And so I was drawing obsessively from as young as I can remember and then studying art. So um, from the early stage. Mm-hmm. Were there any um, big events in your childhood that you found frightening? Um, well, one could argue, one that I wasn't consciously aware of, which was when I was born, being given up for dead um, and turning blue and um, that, I think, has had a psychological impact on uh, the way I view the world without me even necessarily consciously realizing, which has made my view of the world darker. I mean, I've explained that really badly. Um, in terms of, what was the, what was the question again? And so I was thinking about it in terms uh, of something more kind of, you know, specifically uh, conscious. Uh, a big event in your childhood that you found frightening. But I'm curious to know how, besides perhaps being told that you were born that way, that you mm, remembered it or it showed, well, you're saying that it shows up in your life in the way that you view the world, but did you have any specifics? So, so there's no events that I found frightening in my childhood Hmm. um, at all. Uh, but I do increasingly question uh, how that traumatic birth manifests itself in my uh, state of mind in relation to the world, a, 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 a terror of death. Mm. And I think that informs my work because I view life as very precious and the portraits that I take of both animals and humans, um, I think are imbued with a certain sense of melancholy transience. Mm -hmm. Mm I don't know, and I really have no idea, not to get into to kind of too much sort of uh, psychiatric sort of investigation, how much that may have been affected by what happened to me when I was born. Yeah, that's it, it's fascinating to, to think about. I always think about, you know, putting the dots together of certain incidents and, and feeling mm-hmm. that it's related to that. Did you have, um, with regards to that, did you have a continuous, like, physical illnesses that reminded you of that? No. Or, no? Nope. 
just that one incident. Wow. It's all mental. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's really, it's really something to think about um, and reflect on. So um, the day may break is the first part of a global series portraying people and animals impacted by environmental degradation. It looks at the real world fear of the sixth mass extinction. I am wondering how you arrived, or first actually, why don't you um, just give me a little brief uh, intro to the concept of the day may break and then maybe talk to me about how you arrived at this series. So increasingly, when I first began photographing, it dealt more with the natural world and animals within the natural world and their uh, increasingly being wiped out by humankind. But with climate change, specifically, it is clear that humans are also being massively impacted. Um, And so since i feel that climate breakdown climate chaos because climate change just feels like too mild a term now um with it being the most for me consequential significant event that has ever happened to conscious man Mm. uh humans um it i feel that is absolutely necessary for me to address that subject. And so with that, I also need needed to uh, include humans in a much more uh, integrated way for the first time in the work. Sorry, integrated is not the right word because for the since 2015, humans have been integrated, but where humans as the in-focus subjects of the photographs came into play. But I also wanted them to be within the same frame as the animals. So the animals are victims of environmental destruction, be it habitat loss. They're all rescued animals Mm. now in sanctuaries and conservancies that uh, are there because of, you know, habitat loss, poaching, poisoning, wildlife trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. But have, because they can never be reintroduced back into the wild, have now become sufficiently habituated to be photographed close to human strangers. Those human strangers are people who have all been heavily impacted by climate change, many of whom are actually climate refugees, which we are going to see more and more of all across the world over the coming decades. And I wanted them to be in the same frame without special effects, without Photoshop or whatever, um, where they are, we are all, it's kind of a corny thing way to say it, but part of the same planet. But they're not, nobody's, animals or humans are not looking at each other in these photographs. They are connected, i.e. they're in the same frame, but they're disconnected because they're not looking at one another. Mm-hmm. And and then the whole then everything is is photographed with fog um, created by fog machines on location that is on the one hand um, creating a kind of limbo um, 
it's creating a world. Uh, it's symbolic of the natural world that we once knew rapidly fading away. It's also an echo of the wildfires that are sweeping across the planet. What I spent some time with the book over the weekend, or the last couple of days, we're just starting the weekend, and I found that, but I also saw the exhibit when it was up uh, in Los Angeles at the Fahey. Mm -hmm. What I, I found that I needed to know, um, which was, might be a little bit frightening to me, that I needed to know what the story was. And then my heart started to break a little bit. Um, my first uh, uh, experience was beauty. Um, but I find I'm looking for beauty all the time. But when I read the stories, which I intentionally waited to do, mm. I had a whole different experience. So mm. with that in mind, how how do you think that more people would be able to experience your work? Did you think of it in that way? First of all, let me just say about the stories sure. before I answer your question, which I'm probably going to forget by the time I get to it. Um, and sorry for that. Um, in an ideal world, photographs, any art will stand by itself without mm -hmm. the need for context, mm -hmm. written context. However, in this particular instance, there's no question that when you know more about the subjects of the photographs, both animal and human, and you find out their stories, those photographs, I would like to think, become more moving. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that was your experience. Mm -hmm. um, the... I choose to answer your question. I choose a, hold on, let me, let me, how do I explain this? Um, if I was a National Geographic photographer, or if I was a photojournalist, there's no question that I would reach a broader audience than with the work that I do, which is more, you know, uh, to quote quotation marks um fine art photography um that is my artistic ego and pride at work which i can't help myself but that's how i need to express myself mm. through the th through in, in this way so on the one hand i'm extremely frustrated that the work does not reach a broader audience given what I consider to be the most important subject matter that we face, mm. the destruction of the planet. Um, and I'm also frustrated that the internet, and most specifically bloody phones, is a completely inadequate way of viewing the work. It's not designed to be viewed as postage stamps on phones. It's designed to be seen in print form and time to be spent to learn about mm -hmm. those people and those animals. But in this kind of world where everything is more, we're more and more bombarded by information, images, 
in every format, it becomes harder and harder for that to, you know, your 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 work, your messages, your themes to to break through to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like many of us are just. Um being overtaken by work and we're losing our life. We, we simply just don't have time to live our life deeply. And this mm, kind of mm. work needs to be experienced deeply. I see it as a work of advocacy. Um, I'm wondering if maybe you've answered that already. Is that part of your intention? We'll get to the Big Life Foundation afterwards but with this work do you see it as um or or are you is your intention to use it as an act of advocacy as well so the answer is yes with a caveat which is i create for myself Hmm. i create to satisfy my needs as a photographer but along the way, obviously, I want this a vision of how I see the world to be seen by as many people as possible. But I don't change or modify the work to reach more people, which is, mm-hmm. again, getting back to why I'm not a photojournalist, why I'm not a Nat Geo photographer. Not that I think I would be kind of good enough anyway at that kind of work. It's, I'm, I'm, I do what... I do because I'm sort of stubborn in my needing to pursue my obsessions in my own particular way. Mm-hmm. Are you usually confident or insecure when it comes to shoot day? I like being a combination of excited and scared. Mm. I like to be outside of a comfort zone. So, for example, with that body of work, The Day May Break, I had never uh, before may had people be the Mm. in focus, close subjects of the photographs, along with the animals in frame as well. But I really embraced and loved uh, having to do something that was completely new and kind of alien to me. Um, And I like also... Um, not having anything too planned. Mm. I really like to embrace the spontaneous, the unexpected, because out of that, I find, often comes a kind of visual serendipity um, that real life surprises me more things that happen in real life surprise me more than anything I could come up with in my imagination. Mm-hmm. So before this, um, body of work, you photographed wildlife Were was it no. always, Oh, you no, did no. not. Okay. No. no, this, there's been two series. I've, I've stopped that back in 2012. Okay. I want to, um, ask you about the animals then in sanctuary and what your relationship because uh, you were just speaking about spontaneity, and there's nothing like the spontaneity of a a wild animal, even in sanctuary. How did you mm, embody that, or did you feel like you had to embody that? 
in a, in a certain, in a certain way, right? Like the elephant is right there, two feet. And I, most people that I speak with want to be that close to animals without any fear and without um, any, yeah, any fear of being harmed. But there's something about us that, that wants, we want to be close. Did you have that experience for yourself? And was it difficult to manage when you decided to take the photo? Um, no, these animals are all very habituated. There's absolutely no fear. Remember the people who have never been in close proximity to these animals, um, had to be completely relaxed and mm -hmm. they were mm -hmm. because they're very, all the animals in the series, both in Kenya and Zimbabwe in chapter one and now Bolivia in chapter two, which is being released in September of this year. Um, they're all very well cared for and uh, have a great relationship with the people who care for them, who mm -hmm. look after them. Mm -hmm. So there's no zero um, trepidation, but there is of course, yes, always this wonderment. Mm of being in close proximity to uh, animals that we associate with the wild, be it elephant, rhino, giraffe, or in the case in Bolivia, um, bear, puma, jaguar, etc. Mm. I love that image. Um, I think you were, yeah, you were in Bolivia and there was a, a little monkey on your back while you were laying on the ground. Oh, oh, that um, behind-the-scenes shot, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was um, wonderful. That was a spider monkey. They're spider just, monkey. they are absolute love buckets. They are um, they? Just, there's nothing quite like uh, having a spider monkey clinging <laughs> to your head. <laughs> with all their, their arms and legs and tail all wrapped around you. It's just fabulous oh that's so wonderful that is so wonderful uh yeah um i just i love i love this body of work it just thank you it moves me it i yeah i can i can't speak more highly of it and i want to thank you again for sending me the book because i'm just mm, might have a dinner party and we'll just all sit with it for a little while um so when you have conceived of a concept and executed it was there ever a time you felt the concept was better than the finished piece always mm. um that doesn't mean to say you know there aren't you know as discussed things that happen that are better than one could have imagined mm. however there are inevitably in terms of, so there's this great line that Richard Attenborough wrote about directing, well, not directing, but specifically about the shoots, which is shooting as an assault course in compromise. <laughs> now that's about making films where there's all the pressure of time and money and blah, 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 blah. Obviously this is a more relaxed affair because it's a smaller crew without so much kind of guys standing over you with the money saying, that's it, you're out of time. Mm. Um, 
but nevertheless, your hope is always for, say, for example, with chapter one with um, Kenya and Zimbabwe, um, more species. There's a huge number of species that are conspicuously absent from the series, like lions, like leopards, like hippos, um, mm. like gorillas. And that's all for practical reasons, because in the case of the predators, because I wanted to always shoot everything for real, mm-hmm. uh, where the animals and humans were close together in the same frame, it wasn't safe to um, obviously put a, a lion or a leopard in close proximity to the humans. Now, actually, in Bolivia, we managed that because we built this giant sheet of glass with chain link either side and so had the humans in the foreground and the puma and leopard uh jaguar sorry behind the glass but you can't see the glass so it actually does appear like they are within the same frame um and then with primates because of covid we it's obviously no longer possible to be in close proximity to a primate without wearing a mask which obviously is not going to work for a photograph. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that knocked out animals I would love to have photographed, like bonobos and gorillas and chimps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in that regard, yeah, I wish there was a, a wider variety of animals. Mm-hmm. There just might be at some point. Um I love Bonobos too. Yeah. <laughs> so even though these are, uh, some of your projects have, have been large scale involving many moving parts. Um, and you started a foundation, the Big Life Foundation. Can you tell me if your role as an artist has become something you never imagined it would be? They're kind of to separate arenas Mm. Um, one thing I can say is that if I try and figure out what impact has my work actually had in making a difference I have absolutely no idea Mm. I can't imagine that it's as much as I would like But what is concrete, what is tangible, is starting Big Life Foundation back in 2010, going from next to nothing, going from nothing really, to today, uh, a dramatic reduction in poaching of all animals within a 1.6 million acre area that uh, the rangers of Big Life protect. Um, uh, Increase of populations of elephants, giraffes, lions, cheetahs, um, has all happened Mm. because of co-founding Big Life. Um, And now it's, there are 500 local people employed with 300 plus rangers, as I say, protecting 1.6 million acres. So, so, but the two are very different. And, And actually I never, I never, imagined 
becoming a such an active mm. uh, conservationist. But because back in 2010, I saw these animals being wiped out pretty rapidly, I didn't feel that there was a choice. And because I have had access to people with a lot of money as their collectors of my photographs, I was able very fortunately to tap into that. And in the space of weeks, for example, the very first person I met about funding Big Life was one of my collectors who donated a million dollars. And with that money, we were able to hire rangers, buy land cruisers for anti-patrol vehicles, build outposts, etc. Wow. Wow. How many, how many big life foundations do you think we need? <laughs> huh. oh, yeah. So basically, I think we're in a situation of a sort of planetary Sophie's choice mm. that we simply cannot save everywhere. Mm. But as you kind of interestingly put it, if you had enough successful organizations working on a local level across each country and each continent and you imagine that as a a, a kind of spider's web of protection spider's web is probably not the right word but you know what i mean mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um then that would be significant mm -hmm. um but the number is huge however there is a huge amount of also disposable income mm. uh amongst the richest of the world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And instead of trying to build rockets to go into space, that money would be so much better spent on what's here on Earth. Oh, yeah. Or buying Twitter. It, it's... Or, or, or just any kind of, yeah, and, and uh, anything like that. Yeah. I only know a couple of people that work uh, in politics legislation and... Um... I'm grateful for the time that they take to do that and, and maintain a balance to still go out in their garden, you know, and, and mm. be out. But I wonder how to get to the likes of the Twitter buyers and the rocket makers, like how mm. to, how do we, do we get to them? I, you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, America, for all its insanity, mm. and is home to um, many of the best philanthropists in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, the philanthropy in America is hands down exceeds anything else in the world. Mm. Um, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And we are facing such a crisis right now. And we're, I feel, just basically sleepwalking our way to oblivion. Yeah, we, we talked about this when we spoke last week. Mm. How many people, even people in your close proximity, even, you know, our echo chambers, you know, people outside of that that are completely 
they're not even oblivious, but just don't have the ability to even comprehend the magnitude or the need to actually uh, maybe divert their career choices or aspirations towards, um, you know, securing some sort of future for the next generation. Well, if you can, just this last week, if you were to actually uh, look at how many people followed the Johnny Depp Amber Heard mm-hmm. trial mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. how many people followed the latest on climate breakdown, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. it would be sobering, to put it mm-hmm. politely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the Day May Break book, you write, um, these last few years, when I look at imagery of many places on the planet, I no longer find myself able to experience a pure wonder at the beauty. So my question to you is, when everything looks so bad, how can we see the good? Uh, because we do see the be- what beauty is still there and do our damnedest to try and protect it because there that gives you energy to move forward in life and that's what i try and do i wouldn't be taking these photographs if i didn't feel there was some kind of hope Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so i couldn't get up in the morning and do anything if i just kind of gave up and for me there are two words that sum it up the possibility and those Mm -hmm. two words are greta thunberg Mm -hmm. that if one preteen girl was she how old was she when she was first sitting there in the street in stockholm all alone with her placard um uh, was she even a teen yet Maybe that's she what was. i'm trying to remember i, I yeah. think she was yeah 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 she yeah. was uh, yeah um oh. yeah she was barely um i need to actually look it up but if she can do that each of us in our own ways obviously not reaching the brilliant achievements that she has but each of us in our own smaller ways can do something and all those small actions can add up to i think something consequential it's also in the way that you vote just in the way that you vote you know we are continuing to the anti-environmental agenda of the republican party in america is so incredibly destructive and if you vote for pro-environmental if that is your priority if you vote for pro-environmental politicians then but we have to i mean yes then there is a there is a chance um i just i feel a little bit lower than I normally do, so I apologize. Um, no, not at all. And by the way, I stopped myself there because I just thought I'm about to launch into a massive rant and it's kind of redundant. So <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of, I sort of like put on the brakes just then. <laughs> I, I, I felt that. I felt it definitely. Um, and I was actually, I was a little glad that we pushed this along a couple of days because I needed a little space to just... Um, uh, rebalance and uh get you mean uh, after the sh- after the after, school shooting in after texas the sc- i was still reeling from buffalo um mm. so i'm trying not to have too many depressing interviews this week um oh well forget it you're to talking to the, me on the oh no 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 <laughs> oh no 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 i don't do happy interviews sorry <laughs> I will not force you to be anything but yourself. (laughs) 
telling you, the hole is deep, man. It is deep. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, well, if you add in the latest, obviously, with ah, uh, what is wrong with Republicans? What pro-life, my ass, pro-life. So the the fact that they seriously think that teachers are going to be happy to also function as armed security guards mm. is beyond my comprehension. It is they, the, they are so profoundly lacking in any kind of empathy. Mm -hmm. What is it in their brains that makes them incapable of empathy? Y your guess is really as good as mine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm speechless. You know, uh, somebody said to me the other day. They said, you know, have we reached bottom? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't no, no. think we have. Oh, no, no, no. 2024. Oh, my gosh. I just... And then, and then it's the, then the result of that will then continue on spiraling downward. You are listening to What Are You Doing Here? I'm your co-host, Marley. We're going to take a short pause. Don't go anywhere. All right, we are back. We are talking to photographer Nick Brandt about his photographic global series, The Day May Break. It is a series of photographs portraying people and animals that have been impacted by environmental destruction. Before we get back to our conversation with Nick about the series, The Day May Break, we're going to bring a little levity to the situation with our off-the-top-of-your-head questions. Okay, Nick, let's hear what you have to say off the top of your head. Describe yourself in three words. Needs editing often. If you can paint anything, what would it be and why? If I could paint anything, um, I would say the Sistine Chapel before Michelangelo came up with it. What word would you add to the dictionary and what would it mean? Well, am I allowed to use swear words? Sure. Uh, I don't know if it's in the dictionary, but I find <laughs> to be a spectacularly descriptive word. I use it the whole time in a myriad of situations about a myriad number of people and I would, that would be my choice. What are you currently reading? A book called Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. How do you define spirituality? I don't. What terrible movie do you love? Well, I think I have immaculate taste. Next. What's something new happening in your life right now? Plums are, is something new happening in my life. I just went and um, harvested a pre-diabetic amount of plums off the tree this morning. What is your closest close call? Putting on my trousers, or as you would say, pants, uh, and being centimeters, millimeters away uh, from being bitten in stung, stung, bitten, stung. 
um, by a scorpion in the crotch of my pants. What is your version of there are two types of people in this world? My version? Currently, in modern day America, I'm afraid the two tribes are liberals and MAGA. What animal best represents your personality? A rabbit, because of hopping around uh, and being vegan. Let's talk about the Big Life Foundation and its um, manifesto or its mission statement or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way you laid it out and why that's important. So you can no longer expect in this crowded world for people to be okay with saving a place just because it's beautiful. Mm. You have to be more pragmatic. And so, for example, in that, the Amboseli ecosystem where Big Life is, that is one of the few places left in Africa where humans coexist with wild animals because the wild animals don't just conveniently stay within the very small confines of the national park. It's 100,000 acres. 80% of the time, the animals move out of that national park and they're intermingling with the local people. And those local people are dealing with the consequences of the presence of those wild animals. Their, their livestock is being killed by the predators. Their crops are being raided by the elephants every time there's a drought or even when there's not a drought. And so they have to have a pragmatic reason mm. to benefit from living with those animals and the accompanying risks. So Big Life's ethos is that if conservation supports the community, then the community will support conservation. Mm. So Big Life is almost a, pretty much the biggest employer in the region. It's got, as I said, 500 local people uh, are employed. And that means that each of those people has a family. So you talk about thousands of people in that area, all benefiting economically from Big Life, being supported in also the forms of medical care, to forms of scholarships, education scholarships, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've got that huge level of community support and the fact there's compensation for the herders who lose their livestock to predators, the fact that Big Life's built 100 kilometers of electrified fence to stop elephants raiding uh, the farmer's crops. Um, with that comes a level of support that enables that ecosystem to stabilize and hopefully flourish. Even as one is dealing with huge increase in population, in development, and every year another complicating problem mm. that arises. And that is what I think is necessary, especially in parts of the world where the people are poor. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge incentive and to uh, take the short-term approach, take the money, let the mining companies come in, let the forests get chopped down, let the, 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 the land be plowed up for, for um, agriculture. Um, but there's a long-term benefit from protecting the ecosystem. I mean, tourism is 
those elephants are a kind of gold mine. Mm. There was a study done by Save the Elephants uh, a few years ago, and this is kind of, these numbers are probably a bit out of date now, but um, at the time, you know, a poacher, uh, the, the, the amount of money earned by the poacher and the traders for killing an elephant was something like $20,000, compared to the econo economic value of an elephant over the course of its life was up around a million dollars. Now, I may be getting those numbers a little wrong, and as I say, it's a bit out of date, but that's the principle. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, pragmatically speaking, there is huge benefit from, I mean, for example, in Kenya, tourism is the second leading economy. Mm -hmm. If you take away those animals in that area, all you're going to be left with is semi-desert with livestock that is increasingly overgrazing the land and dying off each with each ever worsening drought. And that will just be a spiral downward into ever greater poverty for the people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Preserve the animals and all the infrastructure of tourism and conservation that goes with that, you actually have something that can function uh, right. economically for those people. And therefore, it becomes a win-win situation for the animals, the ecosystem, and the people who live there as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on the education front, um, within, uh, in terms of the young people, um, talking about that benefit economically, but also, I don't know, emotionally, spiritually, right? Like why elephants matter, not just mm, economically, but per is there any sort of structure for that? Any sort of structure for when you when you look at the educational aspect, what is the what is the basis of the let's say curriculum? Well, when I say education scholarships, it's that the that local kids their education is paid for. Okay. It's not that it's not to do with uh, trying to educate them about the wonders of the mm, natural okay. world around them. Okay. 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 And that's going to be, you know, as always, some will respond to that and they may become rangers because they mm -hmm. want to protect this world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but for others, no, they'll always just want to make a quick buck and mm -hmm. sell mm -hmm. the land, go to the city, whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the same world over. Yeah, it is. It really is. Well, if you could uh, give any sort of, again, our audience is, is primarily young and leans in that direction. I'm looking at what young people want to do in terms of careers and investigating their aspirations. What would you, what would you suggest? I think that you always should just find whatever you are most passionate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of how you think you can make a positive change to the world. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, we're not talking about, it doesn't have to be about conservation per se. It could be about anything. It could be about social injustice, um, I, it, anything. Mm -hmm. And just set your mind 
to that because I really believe that passion in and belief in something and, and presumably people who are listening to this podcast are already kind of in that universe in that mm-hmm. sort of um so it's just following that because it gives you energy it gives you hope it makes you feel better it's 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 than just sort of giving up right 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 i know i read somewhere you talked about um using your anger as mm-hmm. a energetically towards it's better to be angry and active than angry and passive mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um i feel like we're in so many ways we're still you know learning how to feel and then when we do knowing what to do with what we feel that's what was surprising for me when i was looking through the images in the day may break was oh maybe it's because of what has just recently happened and I had, that was on my mind but then needing to go to the stories and then then i started crying right and so i'm like wow like i'm pretty much in touch with my feelings so this is odd that I, there was like this you know hardening that had happened um that i needed to have words and you know exact something to make me weep which is normally not the case but um it feel like we're as humans you know getting harder not softer right you spoke of empathy like is it even possible for you know the gop or people in the gop to to um touch upon empathy i really don't know anymore i'm yeah. so endlessly disappointed he said mm-hmm. with a deep sigh mm-hmm. um by as i said the lack of empathy for whether it's pregnant mothers little kids in schools uh having to do food drills, food insecurity mm-hmm. uh having to do drills uh in the event of a mass shooter coming in um i mean the list is is endless mm-hmm. and um america is becoming an exception a country of exceptionalism but it's exceptional in all, all the wrong ways mm-hmm. it's an outlier increasingly an outlier in all the wrong ways now i live here I mean the inevitable thing that people when you know certain people will say well then why did you go back to your own country mm-hmm. well one would like to think that what am i trying to say one would like to think that people would try to progress the definition of the word progressives mm-hmm. uh, progress towards a more civil empathetic society Okay, what's the best way for us to experience your work? Um, in print. In print. Yes. Which okay. of course relies on exhibitions. And right. um you know, um there's a really great show right now on in San Diego of my previous body of work, The Empty World at the Museum of Photographic Arts on until October. Um but other than that, I do think the books are also infinitely superior to looking on computers 
and I, I just would beg everybody to just get off their phones anyway and, you know. Right. So computer, book. Computer, if you can't, if you don't have the book, then yeah, yeah, it, it's it's yes, in descent in descending order, exhibitions, mm-hmm. <laughs> books, computer, and then I, I I'm so grateful for the fact that I grew up without internet, social media anxiety, mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, all of that just got to run around and all those cliches of climbing trees and yeah. hitting a, kicking a football against a, a wall. Um, the, the, the absolute lack of complication, the lack of anxiety, being able to just sort of cycle around the countryside and go exploring. Yeah. Um, and I think that trying to, um, maintain that connection with life and the natural world is is for kids is just so uh, critically important it really is it really is Uh, not just kids but you know the humans that are so completely disconnected from it and really needing to know that that is a very important it's like a job your job needs to be to get reconnected to Mm. nature that has mm. to be your number one thing. Take your meetings outside. Put plants in your, you know, in your office if you have to be inside. I can't remember the numbers exactly, but it's something like you know, uh, Americans spend 70% of their time indoors. And that outdoor time is considered uh, what they calculate in that outdoor time is also the time it takes from you to get from your house to your car into the next building. That's frightening. Mm-hmm. And, and and also, I mean, in terms of emotional well-being, mm-hmm. that be, that being out in nature, even if it's just a park, it's such a boon to to one's soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. To, and I'm very fortunate that I can, you know, when 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 we finish this talk, I'm going to go out, take the dogs for a walk, go and pick some more plums mm-hmm. and watch the birds flying overhead. And yeah. It's a real emotional pick-me-up. Yeah. Yeah. I found that um, just that well, in, in the vein of Thoreau, I mean, I just walk. I walk all the time. I walk all the time everywhere. And when I was feeling really upset um, after Texas. It, I didn't really really think about it, but all of a sudden I just wanted to go in the garden, pick something, make some soup, take it to my neighbor, right? Just this mm, sort of dig in, get dirt under my nails, um, be a part of this thing that we are a part of more than anything to feel some healing or sanity. Mm-hmm. If that's, you know, like I would prefer to run off to the forest, <laughs> but it's not possible. So we have our work cut out for us and I love the work that you're doing and I appreciate it deeply and I'm wanting to share it to so many people and I've gotten really beautiful feedback from people that may not have experienced your work before and I, and I love that. So thank you from my soul for 
using your life force to do this very, very important work. Well, thank you. I mean, you're also trying to make positive change as well. And as I said, everybody, mm-hmm. if they feel passionately enough about it, can direct. I think it's a matter of absolute urgency um, yeah. that everybody, if they care enough, acts upon that care. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for coming by. Not at all. Happy to. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you want to like to say that I may have missed? I don't think so. I mean, thank you for asking unusual, unexpected, interesting questions. Dear Mother, you wish that we live with more awareness and gratitude, and we can do this by generating the energies of mindfulness, peace, stability and compassion in our daily lives. Therefore, I make the promise today to return your love and fulfil this wish by investing every step I take on you with love and tenderness. I am walking not merely on matter, but on spirit. Thank you for stopping by. You can help us spread the word about what are you doing here by sharing this episode or leaving a review in your favorite podcast app. Reviews help potential listeners see that our show is worth their time and every single one makes a difference. For a deeper look at what the Emerging World Project is up to, head on over to emergingworldproject.org. The Emerging World Project studios are on Tongva land.